Radio Mano Papachango. Chris and fellow tangential listeners, this is Taylor coming to you from a cafe in Venice where I am currently passing through on my way back home to Colorado. For the past two months I've been working on a conservation research expedition in Croatia, the last few days of which were punctuated by a short but intense love affair with a beautiful and charming young Croatian woman. So here I am caught in a strange place between two worlds. Between the excitement of foreign travel and the familiarity of home, between the sweet blissful feeling of fleeting love and the sorrow of having left it behind all too soon. So here's to all you wanderers and lovers out there. And here's to you, Mare. Fala, moja yubavi. Until we meet again, ciao. Hi Chris and all the listeners out there. This is Alicia. I'm in New Hampshire finishing up a work day about midweek. I'm a hospice nurse. I work with people who are dying. These people are also living. They're living with some crazy shit just like the rest of us. Um, Some of the folks I work with have addiction problems. They are um, alcoholics and they're young. And it's interesting and hard, no matter how long I've been doing this. Uh, I've seen it before, uh, but it still is difficult to work with families that are dealing with these complicated levels of suffering. Um, At the same time that it feels difficult, it's also extremely rewarding and feels right and feels comfortable. Um, even though I work in the midst of other people's shit. Um, but we all have shit. Uh, it feels good to help with these folks and their families and navigate what they live with every day at the end of their lives. And I know your listeners uh, can appreciate that and are dealing with their own shit. So we're all in it together. Thanks for uh, this podcast. Ah, yes. Parting is such sweet sorrow. And I guess that applies both to young lovers who uh, whose paths cross briefly in Croatia or wherever it happens to be, and to people in a hospice who are departing this particular plane of existence who knows where they're going they're going somewhere um i've said it before my favorite uh metaphor for life and death and and the transition between them is a raindrop falling from the sky and landing in the ocean i feel like that's what a life is i remember saying this to my father Shortly before he died, we were talking about um, life and death, and and uh, 
he knew he was dying, of course. We both knew. And um, I asked him if he ever felt any sort of temptation to become religious because he'd been raised in a very re- religious household, very uh, Irish Catholic. In fact, when he was uh, in high school, my father wanted to be a priest and uh, went to a Catholic college, St. Vincent's College in uh, Pennsylvania, Latrobe, PA. Shout out to Latrobe, PA. Anyway, uh, yeah, he had a crisis of, of faith in college, and uh, because he was really turned on intellectually, he was reading a lot and thinking critically and and really starting to question uh, things that he'd been told in a fundamental way for the first time in his life. He was 19, 20, and uh, this was a pivotal time in his life. He met my mother then, saw her at... uh, I think it was a bowling alley or a roller skating rink or something. It was a place called Harry's Rat Race, I remember. And he said, that's her. That's it. That's the woman I'm going to marry. And he did. He wrote to his parents that night. He said he'd met the woman he was going to marry. And uh, she was still in high school. He was in his first year of college. Had me... uh, Three years later, I think he was 22, she was 21, so he was four years later. Briefly, shortly after they got married, she got pregnant. Um, And my mom was hot. Oh, my God, I've seen some photos. Elizabeth Taylor, beautiful. So, I understand. He was was like a crazed, horny Catholic virgin. Uh, But anyway, he had this crisis of faith, and he said... um, he told me the story years later. He went to his favorite professor, who was a priest, as were all his professors. He went to him after hours um, and uh, confessed, and I use that word intentionally. He confessed that he had he didn't know if there was God. He didn't know if this story really made sense, and the more he thought about it, the less sense it made, and he didn't understand all the shame and guilt and um, the the sort of uh, the suffering, the unnecessary suffering uh, that seemed to be an important part of Catholicism. And the priest looked at him and said, you know what, Frank, I haven't told anyone this, but I think I'm also having a crisis of faith, and I think I, uh, I'm i going to have to leave the church. And he did shortly thereafter. And that guy's name was Father Christopher, and that's why my name is Christopher. Dan Savage tells a very similar story. In fact, I don't think Dan and I have ever talked about this. It didn't occur to me until I was just telling you this story. But Dan's story is about when he came out, And his family was also very Catholic. Uh, Dan, I don't think, was having, uh, wasn't Catholic, didn't consider himself. I guess he went to church because he had to and all that. But his mother was a true believer. And Dan really loved his mother. And anyway, when Dan came out, uh, his mother called the the family priest, which is who you would call in those days for some uh, counseling and 
the priest came to the house and Dan was, uh, this is the way I remember the story. Maybe uh, I may be getting facts wrong, but this is how I remember the story. Dan was upstairs listening from a window while his mother was down on a porch swing uh, speaking with the priest. And his mother explained that Dan had come to her and said that he loved men and he was he was a homosexual and uh, and she didn't know what to do and and the priest paused for a while and he said, "Well, Mrs. Savage, um, I'm also homosexual and it's so much better for Dan to be honest about this rather than try to hide it as I have my whole life." So there's a similarity there, this sort of shared loss of faith um, and that vulnerability in a moment of crisis being so powerful, feeling so weak, and that sincerity somehow being transformed into power that echoes and reverberates across generations. Think of all the people that Dan has helped, uh, millions. And a big part of it is retransmitting the energy that that priest uh, allowed out of himself that day with Dan's mother. It's beautiful. So thank you for doing that work in the hospice. Uh, It's very important, and I'm glad that it feels right to you. Uh, Alicia, it's very important work. And what you're doing is, I'm sure, going to reverb- going to reverberate long after you and I are gone and certainly the people that you're speaking to are gone. And that's a privilege to be able to reach that far into the future. This episode is is with a guy who calls himself Mike Adelic, Mike Brancatelli, I think. Uh, I just call him Mike Adelic, so I'm not really sure what his last name is. Uh, but uh, he does the Mike Adelic podcast. He's uh, an interesting cat. Um, Brancatelli, right, Italian, from New Jersey. Uh, he used to do uh, a libertarian podcast called Part of the Problem, He was a stand-up comic in New York City, um, and now he's living in Denver, and uh, we hung out for a while when I was in Denver, and uh, the van was getting the new engine installed. I think that's when we recorded this, and um, yeah, we got to to spend a fair bit of time hanging out and um, became friends. In fact, Mike Adalek is going to be on stage with me in Denver in a few days for the uh, Civilized to Death event that we're doing there. Uh, I'm very smoothly pulling it up. It's at the Tattered Cover Bookshop in Denver. We're doing it on the 17th. So if you're in Denver or are going to be in Denver on the 17th of October, come on down and say hi at the Tattered Cover Bookshop in Denver. We just... um, Got back. I just got back last night from New York City. Had a few days there. Did an event at the uh, Powerhouse Arena in Brooklyn, which was fantastic. A bunch of people showed up. It was really fun. Um, Tony Paratet 
uh, did the event with me. He's been on this podcast several times. He's a writer who specializes in the uh, sort of where history and and sex overlap. Uh, His latest book, which we talked about in the last episode he was on, um, is uh, Cuba Libre. It's about the sort of the sex lives of the Cuban revolutionaries. It's very, very interesting book and, and just sort of a ground level, very personal view of what it was like to be part of that ragtag group that overthrew the government of Cuba. And uh, it, yeah, it was crazy, crazy times. Um, yeah, so come on down if you're in Denver. Uh, I had a strange experience in Boulder around the time that we recorded this conversation. By the way, I should say Mycadelic obviously is very interested in psychedelics and and worked uh, in the political campaign to get uh, psilocybin mushrooms legalized in Denver. So we talk a lot about consciousness and drugs and how the brain works and all these different fascinating things. Anyway, the story I was going to tell you is one of these, it's a perplexing story. So I was in Boulder with a friend. We were in this beer garden waiting for another friend to show up. And um, this guy comes in and uh, he's got a mechanical arm. And he's a a fit white dude, you know, sort of middle-aged white guy. And uh, I recognize him. It's Aaron Ralston, the, the guy depicted by James Franco in the film uh, 128 Hours, I think it's called, 127 Hours, maybe. Um, he's the guy who, who his arm was pinned between two boulders, and he was hiking alone in Utah and um, ended up having to cut his arm off in order to escape and Anyway, it's a hell of a movie and and was a really interesting podcast. I recorded uh, a year and a half ago at his house. And um, so I was like, oh, yeah, that's Aaron Ralston over there. And my friend said, really? You think so? I said, yeah, of course. He's bolder, you know, mechanical arm. And uh, she said, man, he looks older than, than I thought. And I said, yeah, well, you know, it's been a while since the movie and since the event and you know so the photos are um you know they're sort of dated at this point and he was talking with some other people and uh, I didn't want to go over and interrupt I was sort of waiting for him to because he was greeting people as he walked to his table of course he's famous and all that um but my friend was like nah I don't know are you sure that he just doesn't look right so I got out my phone and I googled him and I immediately noticed that, no, Aaron was missing the other arm. And so it wasn't him. And uh, I'm not sure why I'm telling you the story other than I I know that if I had gone over to him, it would have been a, it would have been really weird, right? If I'd gone over and said, hey, Aaron, how you doing? I'm Chris, remember me? And the guy, how would he have reacted? Would he have been pissed off? Would it have been, would he have laughed? Um, Would he have been confused? Like, has it happened to him before? Does it happen all the time? I know that 
I should be ashamed of this. I, I feel like I should be ashamed of this because there's some sort of bias here, right? There's some sort of like, oh, you know, everybody missing an arm looks the same to you. But the thing is, like, you do notice salient characteristics of people. And other characteristics tend to get missed. I don't think that's necessarily bias. I I feel like that's just the way human perception functions. Right? I mean, it just seems so strange to me the way we're sort of overcompensating for years of racial uh, um, segregation and and, uh, oppression by sort of denying the existence. You know, like, I don't know if this is still still the case, but I know for a while, television channels were not saying the race of a suspect on the loose. So they might say, you know, if there was a hit and run and someone saw the driver, they wouldn't say it's a black man, you know, between 25 and 35. They would just say it's a man between 25 and 35 because it it was considered to be racially insensitive to say the race of the person. But I mean, if the whole point is to tell people to be on the lookout for this person, you would want to say something about the color of their skin because that's a very relevant characteristic. You wouldn't say, you know, it's a a Toyota from 1995. You'd say it's a red Toyota from 1995. Uh, that's kind of important. It helps a lot to know that. Yeah, I don't. I don't really know. I don't know why I'm telling the story. I don't. There's no conclusion to it. There's no. It doesn't really uh, prove anything. It's just thought provoking to me. I have this long, ongoing conversation, sort of debate, with a friend of mine about whether or not Asian people actually look more like each other than European people do. My friend says no that there's just as much difference between people from China uh, as there is from people, you know, different parts of China and different parts of Europe. And I, I just, I don't understand how that could possibly be true. If they all have like straight black hair, that's a major, that's a major variable that doesn't vary. Italians and Swedes, they just look very, very different. They're different colors. They're different hair different statured like the whole thing's different and he says no you're just that's racist and basically you're what you don't understand is that when everyone has the same color hair you notice other characteristics i think that's true in other words i think for someone raised in china they can recognize other people as readily as someone raised in Europe can recognize other people. But I also think that that objectively there are fewer variables. So you might adapt to that the way a blind person adapts to hearing better and they can use echolocation maybe to move through a room. But that doesn't mean that they're receiving a, a more restricted bandwidth of information i don't know it's an it's an interesting question i i don't claim to have a definitive answer i just think it's an interesting question 
why I would have made a major social faux pas if I had gone over and said hello to that guy. So if you're listening, if you happen to be listening to me, other guy in Boulder, white dude, fit, wearing Patagonia clothes and a baseball cap with a mechanical arm who isn't Aaron Ralston, um, my apologies for almost coming over and confusing you with Aaron. All right, I'm just about to stop talking before I get myself in more trouble here. Uh, if you are in Seattle, Portland, or San Francisco, please go to my website and check out the date and location of the Civilized to Death event coming up soon in your town and come out and say hi. We had so much fun in New York after the event. We went out and got shit-faced and played pool and said all sorts of inappropriate things uh, to each other. It was beautiful and uh, lasted till two in the morning, or at least that's when I checked out. And I imagine something similar may very well happen in the uh, the towns coming up. Denver, Seattle, Portland, and San Francisco. So if you want to come and hang out and talk about books and party and say inappropriate things, uh, we got you. Speaking of saying inappropriate things, this episode is brought to you by Lilo, L-E-L-O dot com. They make the best sex toys in the world. They even make things that... I don't know if they're officially categorized as sex toys. I mean, whips is a, I guess you could use it on a horse, but I don't know. I think they're designed, they're like suede. I don't think, I don't think a horse would even feel them, but so it must be a sex toy. Um, but yeah, they, they make S and M gear. They make uh really high end vibrators. Like I'm talking Bluetooth programmable, uh, you know, you can operate some of them from across the room. Uh, you can do, you can get into all sorts of kinky situations uh, if you um, are a heterosexual couple or or a lesbian couple. Uh, someone has to have a vagina is what I'm trying to say um, because one of these things sort of like grips the clitoral, clitoral area and the other person can control it with a remote control like hockey puck looking thing um, that could make your next cocktail party either really hot or really awkward, whatever you like. Um, but they make great stuff. So if you're going to have a vibrator or you're going to get a vibrator for someone else, take it from me, an old white dude. <laughs> what do I know about vibrators? You're asking not much other than what I've been told, but what I've been told is that these are the best. They're fantastic. And uh, you can, they're waterproof, easy to clean. They don't even look like, uh, they don't look like dicks. They don't look, they look artistic. It's like a piece of art that you can have out on the coffee table and your neighbors or your kids or the plumber could see it there and they think, oh, that's just a really space age, cool looking thing. It would never occur to them what it really is. So, they're discreet, they're beautiful, they're artistic, they feel nice. And by that, I mean the material is high-end. It's not some cheap plastic. They're designer. They're, they're Maseratis. They're like, they look like they're designed by Italians. I don't know if they really are, but that's how they look. So Lilo.com, there's a link on my webpage if you forget. They also have uh, male sex toys. So what I said before about needing a vagina, that's only for that particular remote control thing I was talking about. 
If you don't have a vagina, you can still go to Lilo.com and get something for yourself or your loved ones or your friends or or your mom. Uh, makes a great Mother's Day gift. I don't know. Whatever. I'm sure there are women and men in your life who would appreciate a high-end sex toy. So Lilo.com. And if you use the discount code Chris Ryan, you get 15% off all full-priced items. So if what you want isn't on sale, it's on sale for you if you remember to say or to write Chris Ryan in the discount code space. All right. Uh, as I said, go to my new website. It's thatchrisryan.com or chrisryanphd.com or tangentiallyspeaking.com. All roads lead to the same place. The new website, by the way, is designed by Wake Media. You can check them out. Their website is wakemedia.earth.com. Apparently, whoever owns wakemedia.com is asking a pretty penny for that URL. So they're wakemedia.earth. And I think I mentioned before that the three brothers who run the company are Christopher, Patrick, and Ryan. So... I don't know. God wants me to love these dudes. And I do, but not because God says so. I do because they did such an amazing job putting together this website. It's clean and works perfectly. And we, I still have my other website uh, up and running because I was afraid, you know, this one might, there might be lots of bugs. There might be things that don't work or whatever, man. Patrick did such a great job. The website launched and it works. It works great. I mean, anything we're changing is like my bio because I fucked it up when I wrote it or I like this picture instead of that picture. But as far as the the development and functionality of the website, it's fantastic. Um, so you can go there. You can comment on episodes. You can see the photos. You can. Um, there's actually a forum that's been set up for listeners. Uh, some of the things are, are they're not behind a paywall per se, but they're for subscribers. Um, so you can subscribe for as little as two bucks a month um, and you get everything. You get the eBooks, a new one just came out. Um, it's on Amazon for $4.99 or you get it free if you're a subscriber. So you know, my advice is uh, throw in two bucks and go get it for free and then cancel if that's all you can afford and you really want the book. Um, but that's called uh, Tangentially Talking Drugs. And it's some excerpts from uh, podcast episodes with Carl Hart and Dennis McKenna and Charles Grobe and uh, other people talking about psychedelics, um, similar to this episode with Mike Adelic himself. So check that out. And there's a forum as well for members where you can talk about whatever the hell you want to talk about. And I'll certainly drop in and say hello. And then additionally for subscribers, I'm doing one uh, video Roma episode every month. I just did the last one, uh, the first one last week. And I really enjoyed it. It was, it was um, surprising because I've always thought, you know, I've considered using cameras in the past. I even bought a camera and tripod and I was going to, sort of do a video uh, component to the podcast. And I ended up not doing it because it was just too much hassle to, you know, and I didn't want the the guests to be nervous with the lights and the camera and the tripod. And, you know, it's enough for most people. They're not, wor- they're not used to speaking on mics. So 
any sort of paraphernalia is um, an impediment to a relaxed conversation. But in this case, uh, I just used the, the camera, the video camera and the computer. So I was sort of sitting in a room, a dark room, and I was, there was a light on my desk and I had a beer and I was just sort of talking and I was looking at myself talking in this dark room and it felt weirdly intimate. I don't really know why, but I, I definitely enjoyed the experience and uh, I'm going to continue. So anyway, if you're a Patreon contributor and you want to uh, slide on over to my independent platform, please do. If you don't contribute at all, but you feel like you want to, please do it at the platform. If you're on Patreon and you want to stay there, please stay there. Uh, whatever works for you. Um, just letting you know what's going on over there. I'll continue doing Romas, uh, audio Romas, uh, as before, you know, once a month or so, whenever the feeling is right. Um, but I'm going to do those video ones at least once a month for the people on that platform. All right. Thank you for everything. Uh, I guess that's all I really have to say. We'll just get into this conversation with Micah Delic. I hope to see you out on the road if you get a chance to come, if you live in any of those cities. If not, uh, I'll see you somewhere else down the road. Thank you for all the support of the podcast. And those of you who got a copy of Civilized to Death or who are about to get a copy, I really appreciate that. It's It's been fantastic seeing all the photos on Instagram and uh, Twitter activity and all that stuff makes me look good for the publisher. And that's what it's all about at this point. All right, I'm going to play a tune. It's one of those uh, covers that illuminates the original so beautifully. You know how you hear someone, I, I referred to the uh, cover of Hey Ya so many times, the outcast tune. The guy does the sad version and you realize, oh my God, that song is so sad, but they sing it as if the original outcast sing it as if it isn't. And so I never realized because the the music uh, is a contrast to the lyric. Uh, this is another example of that. This is Back in the High Life Again, which was a big hit, I guess late 70s maybe, uh, by Steve Winwood. And if you know the original, if you don't know the original, I'd really encourage you to check it out. It's a great song, super catchy, and it's celebratory. It's it's just, it's this song, it sounds so hopeful and fantastic, and you know, it used to seem to me that my life was, uh, I forget the lyric, but it, it's about, uh, like, everything's going to be great, we're going to be back in the high life again, that's the chorus, back in the high life again. We're going to get back in the high life again. You're going to see it's going to be so great. This is the Warren Zevon cover. And I believe Warren was already diagnosed with cancer when he recorded this. The album is called Life Will Kill You, which tells you a little something about where his head was at when he recorded this. And it's a cover of that song that when you listen to Warren do it, you realize the song was never happy. This is not a song about celebration of triumph. It's a song about denial. It's a song about someone who refuses to see what's really happening in their lives. And that's the greatest pain of all. No matter how dismal things look, 
denial's worse. At least, that's how it feels to me. This is Warren Zevon singing Back in the High Life again, and then we'll be talking with Mike Delic. Thanks for listening. Bye. to seem to me that my life ran on too fast and I had to take it slowly just to make the good parts last when you're born to run it's so hard to just slow down so don't be surprised to see me in the brighter part of town and I'll be back in the high life again all the doors I closed one time will open up again I'll be back in the high life again All the eyes that watched me once will smile and take me in And I'll drink and dance with one hand free Let the world back into me Oh, I'll be a sight to see Back in the high again You used to be the best Make life be real to me And I hope that you're still out there like you used to be Have ourselves a time And we'll dance till the morning sun But let the good times come We won't stop until we're done And we're back in the high life again All the doors I closed one time Will open up again We'll be back in the high again All the eyes that watched us once will smile and take us in And we'll drink and dance with one hand free Have the world so easily Oh, we'll be a sight to see Back in the high We'll be back in the high again All the doors I closed one time will open up again We'll be back in the high life again All the eyes that watched us once will smile and take us in Back in the high life I'll do that again Whoa, 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 whoa. Hey, how you doing? Hey, hello. <laughs> <laughs> That's Mike. I'm here with Mike. Uh, what the fuck's your last name? Brancatelli. Brancatelli. Yeah. Mike Brancatelli. But I like I Ellis Island my name for the internet. Sometimes it's Mike Brank. Mike Brank, also <laughs> known as Mike Adelic. 
Not brankadelic. Did you consider brankadelic? You know, someone called me that. That's where I got the idea from uh-huh. when I, I was working at this restaurant jo- uh, job in New York, and the guy was like, "Brankadelic, all right, man." Like, <laughs> and I kind of dug it. So yeah. yeah. So you just sort of looked. Do you have a middle name? Paul. Paulidelic. Yeah, 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 not really. Yeah, a not little, too. A little fond. bland. A little bland. My yeah. youngest brother's named Paul, so oh, I'm like not. Would have like, been him. Yeah, I don't want that. That'll be his podcast. <laughs> yeah. So uh, before we get into this, I should tell people that if they um, want to hear sort of a mirror image of this conversation that we're about to have in some ways, uh, that is you interviewing me, they can go to your podcast, Mikeadelic, uh, which I looked I looked it up on iTunes. It's got bajillions of reviews five-star reviews everybody loves it that's great and you've got a lot of episodes up you've been doing this for a while uh i just released the 114th episode yeah all right sweet congratulations thank you i'm pushing 400 nice yeah Yeah, i'm a veteran a grizzled veteran yeah i've well i've been podcasting since 2014 i i used to be so I was doing stand-up comedy in New York, and right. my buddy Dave Smith, uh, who's a comedian, and uh, me and him did this libertarian political show with like... What was it called? Part of the Problem. Right. Some right. people actually recognized uh, the show from from some of your listeners. So. Uh, part of the Problem. Yeah. Libertarian. So do you consider yourself a libertarian? No. Uh, I I guess maybe I'm an anarchist. Hmm. You know, well, how do you define that? Well, or is the point that there's no definition of anarchy? So, okay, so like I, I used, I used to be like pretty, like I went, I went in like a lot of different phases in my like uh, understanding of like who I am and the world. And originally, I was like really. Uh, like like evangelical about like libertarianism and like Mm. atheists, like that was my thing for a while. But I've evolved, you know, I've, I've evolved and I, I don't really like to attach to labels, but I just kind of go with the underlying principle of like, I believe that, you know, nobody should really impose themselves on anybody else. Nobody should like infringe on anybody else's rights or take things or initiate violence against otherwise peaceful people, unless in self-defense or something like that. And I see, I see government uh, the state as being like a cancerous idea that's manifested in our world since the dawn of civilization, since the dawn of getting surpluses of food together, kingships and rulerships. So, um, but I also see it as a human problem, not just this particular apparatus, this system or institution. I see it as, um, you know, a problem of human consciousness and psychology and, you know, how we relate to power, what we deem to be, um, acceptable forms of power in our world. Yeah. 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 I, I'm sympathetic to a lot of those ideas. I, I always run up against the problem of practicality though, you know, when talking about anarchy or, or even extreme libertarianism, you know, if the state has no right to enforce regulations and so on and so forth, and the company can sell rotten meat and, you know, the guy upstream from my property can dump his shit into the river. And, you know, it's, 
it becomes real hard. And, and I guess some people would say, well, you'll just work it out into individually, you know, like that'll, that'll have reputational damage for him or, or whatever. Um, but it just, I always run into that problem, you know, like if you can't call, if there's not some overriding, uh, dominant player that can be consulted and, and turned to in times of need, then I'd fucking shoot my neighbor who's dumping shit in the stream. (laughs) Would you really? Probably. (laughs) Yeah. If my kid goes out and my kid's drinking from that stream and that guy's dumping his shit in it, like we're going to have a serious problem. Yeah, totally. I I think that we definitely need to have some kind of structure, you know. And I mm. like I like the structure of the tri the tribal structure. I like the structure of like both, maybe a brother. council of yeah, elders, you right. know. I mean, I think I forget who I was talking to the other day about the Iroquois tribe, right? And their council of like women elders, like the grandmother council, right? Which was the model for the United States government, actually, right? Benjamin Franklin modeled the tricameral uh, government based upon the different the way the Iroquois nation worked, where you had the circle of the men who would make decisions, and sitting outside them, you had the circle of the women, the the elders you're referring to who had to approve those decisions. Right. So the men might say, yeah, we're going to go fuck up the Ottawa's. And, and the women would be like, nah, veto. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's not going to happen. Be- because this is the, my, my whole thing is that like, like uh, in Lord of the Rings, right? Like Gandalf gets, he has the ring of power and, or he discovers that, um, Fro- what's his name? Frodo? Frodo has it, right? So he's like, you know, Frodo, you must take this and, and go. And Frodo tries to offer it to Gandalf. Like, I'm just a little hobbit. Like, I can't take this. Like, you take it. Yeah. And he's like, no, absolutely not. Because he knows that, like, even he will be corrupted by this ultimate power. Mm. That it's, you have to be, you know, like all the, the legends of the Grail and King Arthur, like, who's capable of holding this inevitable, corruptible power. Mm. And it's, it's that's what I'm I'm interested in. And I think that, like, this like grandmother council of wise elders are the ones that are able to do that. Maybe Mm. like, I think that's what we need. Yeah. That's an interesting idea. And, and it's, you know, on one hand I look at the, the elections that are coming, you know, sort of bubbling to the surface now. And I see someone like, uh, mayor Pete, who's what, 36 or something and brilliant and gay. And, you know, like, and I'm like, fuck, yeah, let's get a new generation in there because these old people are just fucking everything up. But on the other hand, it does kind of feel like there's a, at least an opportunity uh, in old age to be uncorruptible. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that's the theory. Like, I'm going to be dead in 10 years. You can't offer me enough money, you know? <laughs> but then you look at it in practice and it's, it doesn't seem to work. Like, John McCain became more of a douchebag the older he got and less independent. And, you know, I, I, uh, there was a time when I admired him. Like, that was a guy who would tell it like it was. But that fucking guy kissed Trump's ass at the end of his life. Well, yeah, I mean, he's been, he's been corrupted. He's been twisted by the, the dark crystal, right. you know, so to speak. Yeah, a- but, like, what, what can corrupt a guy who's 78 years old and has cancer, you know? Too far gone. 
He's yeah. already he's so he's been in those ways. You know, I, I look, I I mean, where are these like wise old elders in our yeah. in our society? We've Not cast on the them Supreme away. Court, apparently. Well, we've cast yeah. them away. And you know, if you want to be in this system that we have established uh, you know, in this in this government we have, you're you're going to be augmented by the container yeah you know well and also it gets back to some of the stuff you and i discussed on your podcast how we live in a a social world that rewards certain kinds of psychopathology certain kinds of striving that a healthy person wouldn't bother with so who's gonna reach those heights of you know senate congress supreme court people who are busting their ass trying to get whatever money fame power in this case um which by definition is not a healthy person it's not a wise person in my opinion wise people check out wise people retire as soon as they can yeah well i i love what uh alan watts says about this how he says like a society that doesn't leave room for the outsider is an insane society hmm because the the outsider, the the man on the hill, the man in the mountains, who's a part of the culture, a part of that society, but detached from it at the same time, right. is able to inform the society of the value structures right. and the morals. And, you know, we don't... In India, I think they still kind of have room for if you want to check out and go to an ashram. I don't know about it today. Yeah, sadhu. Yeah, yeah. but we don't... It seems to me that we don't mainstream that in our cultural value system mm. to say like hey if you don't want to be a part of what we got going on in this like predominant game here uh there's some room for you to kind of check out and that will be valued and right. we value you because of your ability to say no well in a traditional society that would often be a shaman the, right. sh- the shaman didn't live in the in the village with everyone else normally he or she was out on the outskirts somewhere doing their own thing and as you say, they've got that perspective, uh, a much more multi-leveled, nuanced perspective on things, which people would consult for healing, of course. Now, in the modern world, do you consider yourself, or at least are you aspiring to a role of being that sort of outsider? Is that what we're doing with these podcasts and our travels and the psychedelic experimentation and all that? I mean, I've always felt like an outsider, right? you know, um, from as far back as I can remember, I've always felt like something's off Mm. here. Like what I'm seeing in front of me is not everything there is. And I want to know more. I want to go beyond. Um, and it also didn't help that everyone in my circle, you know, the adults in school and parents were like, oh, you know, shut up, just go to school and don't worry about all that other shit. So, yeah, I'd like to I'd I, I'd like to think that I, I, I aspire to maybe one day uh, have a place where people can come. And I know you've talked about this. I'm on board with that that sort of idea. Uh, I much in the same way as where where I lived and worked the Temple of the Way of Light in, in Peru in the jungle. Um, there's like a central dining hall area, and mm. then everybody has their own like huts, their own tambos, and we do ceremonies, and we come together, right. and we eat together, and we hang out together, and that kind of thing, you know. And no one's forcing you to stay come and go as you please. Someone wants to play music, they play music. If you're, you know, 
I, I like this kind of like free association and people kind of voluntarily getting together with like-minded, like-hearted individuals to build, uh, you know, like what's the best, what's the best way that we can get along and have fun, mm. you know? Cause I think that's, there's so much beauty in the world and there's so much fun to have and there's so many orgasms to have. And like, yeah. you know, it's like that, how can we do that? That's right. good for everyone that wants to be a part of it. But in our world, there's not, you have to kind of have the money to buy the land. You got to buy the land from the person that owns the land. And then if you're in a place, not like here in Denver, where mushrooms are now decriminalized, whatever. I mean, we, we can't run ayahuasca ceremonies. It's got to be all underground. And then mm. you, who's doing it right. And how do you manage yeah. that? So yeah. Yeah. And another thing we, we talked about that relates to this is the commercialization of these sorts of experiences. Because, as you say, you need the money to buy the land and blah, blah, blah. Uh, and then people start attaching money to it. And then it becomes, uh, then the ego gets involved, of course, if, you know, money and ego are never far apart from each other. You're a very thoughtful guy. You know, after we did your podcast, we went out to dinner and, you know, you reference a lot of books that I've read and um, you're, how old are you, 30 something? Yeah, I'm 34. 34, yeah. So you've obviously been on this path of, of um, you, you've been searching for a long time and you've done it in travel, you've done it in experience, you've done it in reading. Um and one of the themes that came out in our conversation that I, I sort of felt was, well, I don't, know, I don't know how to say this. Like you, you mentioned it earlier, that you were very evangelical. So it, it seems like, tell me if I'm wrong, but my sense is that your life has been this sort of pendulum swinging between certainty and despair and like, Oh fuck! I, you know, I know it now, and then oh no, that's not it. And then uh, oh, I found it now, and now maybe not. Is that accurate? Or? Totally. Yeah. yeah. And I th I think it all stems from how I grew up, like how I was raised. Like you know, it this I've recently come to these realizations in the last couple of years. You know, working with ayahuasca, living in the jungle with the shipibo, and um, my sort of like passionate defiance to authority and uh, holding on to these beliefs like, no, this is the way it is or uh, is because I felt kind of caged as, as a youngster and mm. I was fighting against things. And you grew up in New Jersey I, in New York. New yeah. York. Yeah. yeah. And uh, West Nyack, like Rockland so, County. Right. shout out Palisades yeah. mall. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so you went to public school, yeah. And your family's what working class, like what? They're teachers. Teachers, okay. Yeah. So you grew up in a very sort of like normalized, sort of standard American suburban family. Is yeah, that, that pretty right? much. Yeah, right. So you felt caged by that. Yeah, I just I was always like, why, why, why? You know, mm. like it's time to go to. You have to go to bed. It's time to wake up to go to school. Like you have to learn these things. Like. And no one really had like answers for me. And you know, my, my parents had their own shit. Like they fucking were yelling and screaming at each other all the time. Mm. I think because my like analysis of it now is that they played the game of life. They bought into this American dream and everything's going to be okay. Just get married, have kids, get a house, get a job, get a, you know, pay your bills and go to church or whatever. Right. 
and I, I, one of the memories that's just burned in my brain is like witnessing my parents being so overwhelmed and not like literally breaking down and like crying and screaming and yelling and throwing things because I I can't take this anymore. I can't take this anymore. And, um, that was, um, that was hard to be around, you know? And, uh, and my response to that was like, what's wrong with you idiots? Like I felt like the adult coming in the room and being like, all right, you kids like break it up, but they wouldn't listen to me. No one listened to me. You're the oldest. I'm the oldest. Yeah. So my, then I was like, well, I guess I'll just do what they do. And I just started breaking things and yelling and screaming. And then Mm. I, I would run away from home. I would be out as much as possible. And I just had friends that we just did a lot of drugs and just were a lot of like dirt bags, like teenage dirt bags. And, uh, and, uh, and school, you know, they just were like, we don't know what to do this kid. Like I would just do whatever I wanted to do. I didn't try and game the system. I just would come into class 20 minutes late reeking of weed. And my teacher would be like, Oh, well, good of you to join us, Mr. Bancatelli. And I'd be like, ah, fuck you. You know? <laughs> like, <laughs> mm. And like, yeah, I mean, I was just like a lost, confused kid that was yeah. angry and, you know, so that's where that, that, that stuff came from. Um, you know, did you have legal problems? Did I have legal problems? Yeah. I mean, this kind of behavior didn't lead you into. Oh yeah, I mean, I went to. I was, uh, yeah, like my my mom would be like, like I can't take him anymore. Like I don't know what to do, and like I'm gonna call the cops, and like the cops would come, and mm. you know, like handle it, whatever. And then I, I think I was on like probation. Like I had to go to like see a counselor or something, but you know, and then they they put me in. Um, uh, you know, we went to see like a psychiatrist and he immediately was just like, oh, I'll just give you Adderall, you know. <laughs> Thanks, man. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> I just, right. I at 14, yeah. I was getting, pres- I had prescriptions to 30 milligram Adderall pills that are no methamphetamine. Shit. So he basically said you had a uh, hyperactive disorder, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh right. yeah. Calm them down yeah. with these pills. Yeah. And uh of course I abused them, yeah. you know, I, I, I took one and I was like, Whoa, this is an interesting feeling. Mm. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, that, that was, a. Uh, it was tough, you know, it was tough. It definitely, um, did you find anyone in those years that you resonated with personally or through books or art or music or something? Was there a lifeline that you could grab? It, that didn't happen until college. The How kind did of you get into college. Yeah. Uh, so my guidance counselor in high school, because I my junior year of high school, so they, we would routinely have these like parent teacher conferences, and I'd be like sitting in this like boardroom with like all these suits, and they'd be like, "We just don't know what to do," because I would just cram the night before, study for a test, get like an A on it, and just be like, "Cool, that's good," you know. Mm. So my grades were actually good. It mm. was just my behavior right. and insubordination. Right. Like, you know, I remember one time. Achiever syndrome. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. yeah. So they, uh, you know, were just like, look, you should just drop out of school and get your GED. Mm. And then if you do that, then you can go to community college and you can do, it'll be a better environment. You're free. You can take whatever classes you want. And so I did that. I did that in my senior year. I went to community college and I got, you know, like a good GPA and transferred and went to, uh, went to school, went to college and, uh, 
Arizona was the first place I went, but I, I just partied there. And then, uh, and then I transferred to Buffalo and that's when I kind of got serious around like Oh six. Mm. Yeah. What were you studying? So I actually started as an English major, uh-huh. but, uh, then I was like, I don't want to read these books. <laughs> I'll just, I could read whatever I want in my right. own time. Right. Um, but I, yeah, I was very much into writing, creative writing and poetry and, and English. But, uh, uh, I found communication, to be kind of a fusion of media and writing and speaking. And so I'd majored in that. Right. So did you know you were smart in high school? I mean, you cram the night before get an A. Yeah. You knew you were smart. Yeah. And that fed the defiance probably. Yeah. Cause like, wait a minute, I'm smarter than most of these teachers. Yeah. Yeah. I can yeah. relate to that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I went to three different high schools. I was always the new kid. Mm. So I never, I wasn't a, as much of a until the very end I all my insubordination came out when I moved to this new school halfway through senior year because I was like already in college so who gives a shit and that's when I I started leading revolutions and stuff <laughs> but yeah yeah it's but it's hard I my sister went through a lot of that that's how her anger played out yeah, it's it's a strange thing because you know you look at it from from an adult perspective and you say those are the kids who like have the most going on inside, you know? Because I taught. Have you ever teach in a school? You, I have. Yeah, you went back and taught in the high school, right? I did, did uh, in uh, yeah in Nyack High School. In Nyack, yeah, I taught the kid with it was kids that were kind of difficult and had learning disabilities, <laughs> but I, I, yeah. I did well in that role. And uh-huh. I, and I, I think actually that was the first kind of spark within me to say, Oh shit. Like I can actually offer something to these kids. Cause I've been through this. Right. I know where you are, man. Like yeah. I can talk to you in your language and, and sit here with you and relate to you. And it, and it, it, it the kids liked me like, and it, it, it did, it was good. And it, it made me think about it, but I, I didn't get into teaching because again, I don't want to teach the state curriculum and right. you know, like be in this factory farm of exactly. you know, this prison of yeah. Uh, schooling. Well, yeah. I mean, you can see like people who rebel against that environment, like, fuck yeah, that's a bullshit environment. No wonder they're rebelling. Yeah. I mean, you know, like people say like, I'm allergic to bullshit. Yeah. Like I've just always kind of felt like, yeah. it's just like, this doesn't seem real to me. Hmm. You know? So when you, you said you found these lifelines in college, what, how did that play out? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. I'm, I think it just kind of like slowly played out. It wasn't really some like, you know, epiphany or anything. It just kind of slowly, I just noticed that like, oh yeah, actually I remember I, I was dating this girl at the time and we were in a, I had a psychology class, um, that I went to the first day to get the syllabus. This was kind of like my model. Like I'd go show up the first day, get the syllabus, figure out what the whole thing is, mm. get the book or borrow the book. And, and I just never went to class until there was a test. And, uh, we had uh, a midterm and I showed up in class and I was sitting right behind this girl and she turns around and she's like, what are you doing in my class? And I'm like, well, I'm in this class. She's like, I've never seen you here. I'm like, yeah. Well, yeah, it's the midterm, so I'm here, you know. Mm. But I remember studying for that test, Psych 101 or something like that and and being like, "Wow, this is amazing. Like I should be mm. I should be reading this like more." And then I started to read more on my own, uh psychology and 
and philosophy and, and things like that. I got into Henry David Thoreau and Ralph mm. Waldo Emerson. Oh, and yeah. I got into uh, Robert Bly and uh, some other people. Men yeah. in the Woods. Yeah, Men in the Woods. Yeah, <laughs> Ted Kaczynski, you know. <laughs> sure. Just the typical. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the, the Transcendentalists. That, yeah. That was my jam in college as well. I love that stuff. Yeah. Uh, Melville. Mm. Yeah. I, I like. I had a. I really took an interest in Hemingway after reading mm. uh, "The Sun Also Rises" right. and Bukowski, Charles Bukowski, because Bukowski made me realize that you don't have to be like. And then you know she was so elegant in her achievements. You know, like you could write right. raw and real, and I was like, wow, I didn't know that. Like yeah. I didn't know that that was a possibility. A lot of vomit. Yeah, I mean... Uh, a little too much vomit for he, me. He was like a college thing for yeah, me. I'm, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I was uh, around that... I, I read a lot of Henry Miller. You ever read him? I, I haven't really... Uh, what Tropic of Cancer, yeah, no, Tropic I never, of Capricorn. I never read those, no. He wrote a book about America called The Air-Conditioned Nightmare. He, Henry Miller is really interesting because he's sort of like the proto-Bukowski. He was writing... He was in Paris between the First and Second World Wars when it was um, a really cheap place to live and a lot of American artists and writers would go over there. And, uh, yeah, he had no money at all and was always, you know, trying to get money from friends and borrowing and stealing. And just, he was just a survivor. And he wrote this book about those years, Tropic of, I forget if it's Cancer or Capricorn. One, one's the follow-up to the other. Um, but it, there's a lot of fucking and drinking and, you know, and he wrote about it very in a raw, open, confessional kind of way. And then the book was banned. It was, they weren't allowed to import it into the U.S. There was that and James Joyce's Ulysses were like the two big test cases. And then right. D.H. Lawrence's Sons and Lovers, I think, was the other one. They, they all went to the Supreme Court and it was this big deal. Um, but yeah, people who want to read that kind of stuff, it, Bukowski's great, uh, but Henry Miller sort of really laid that shit out first. Yeah. I love Bukowski's poem, The Man with the Bright Blue Eyes. Mm, I don't know. It's, you know, and all these guys are outsiders, right? Like yeah, they're all like right. the products of this machine environment that's squeezing people out of it. And it's like, where do you go? Well, I guess your their way of fighting against the system is to to release this creative inspiration inside of them and, and vomit it out on the page or whatever, yeah. you know? Mm -hmm. And, and that's great. You know, um, glad we have that stuff. Yeah. Man with the bright blue eyes is, is a nice poem by, by Bukowski. It's, it talks about this guy kind of lives on the edge of town in the, in the woods or the fields and these kids, they go and the, the parents say, never go to that house, you know, and they go and there's this ragged looking guy there and he's drinking and he's got a woman inside and he's like, Oh, shut up, you whore or something. And you know, they're the, the, then they, they go back cause they leave the house and then they go back cause they want to see him again because it was fascinating to them because they'd never seen anything like this in their sterile, pristine suburban mm. world. Uh, and then the house is gone and they find out that like the parents in the town, like burnt the house down and you know, they cleansed it and, um, yeah, it's a, it's kind of a touching, you know, story, you know, now he's living in a sprinter van. <laughs> yeah. That's <laughs> sprinter vans and podcasting, you know, <laughs> that's, that's all you need, man. Yeah. 
That's it. Yeah. Yeah. So you uh, you told me the other night this whole thing with your you knew some guys and they started a company. Is this was this when you were in college or how did that? That this happened after my Southeast Asian travels. Okay. Right. So you were doing stand up comedy. Yeah. Why? What was the what was the pull to that? Um. Well, I I was trying to be a juggler, but. (laughs) Kept dropping. You know, they ran me out of the circus, Chris, with pitchforks. Kept dropping shit. Too loud to be a mime. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. it's way too loud to be a mime. This guy doesn't shut up. I like. I've always liked comedy, and and you do good uh, impersonations. You you get really talented. I listened to your Trump thing. Oh yeah, did you like it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was good. Tremendous Trump, fantastic, terrific impression. Okay. The best. There's no one better. Yeah. China. <laughs> I, yeah. Oh, China. Yeah. I, I love I love doing that. And uh, I'll, I'll throw in. I used to do like an Alex Jones. And, uh, you know, yeah, I, I love I've always done like voices and noises and mm. stuff. And funny, like when I was a kid, like I, I remember going to see the movie White Fang. All right. Wait. Uh, yeah. And yeah. When I was a kid, it was a Disney thing, but it was based on uh, what's his name, The Call of the Wild, Jack London, Jack London, right? Yeah. And I went to go see that with my dad. And when I was a kid, like I was always putting on, you know, I'd take my younger brothers and be like, "We're the Ghostbusters, okay? You're Egon, you're you know Ray, mm. you know I'm Bill Murray, and you know Ninja Turtles. Like I'm right. I'm I'm Raphael. You guys are these guys. And I was acting things out. And sometimes you know my mom would come with a camcorder or whatever, and you know, I'd come home from seeing a movie and I would emulate the movie. Like I ran around the house like I was the wolf in White Fang, you know, mm-hmm. and and I and running around and ah, I'm the wolf. I want to eat my dinner on the floor like the wolf. And, you know, and my mom w- and, you know, she's like, all right, enough is enough already. You know, like you, you got to live in reality. You can't yeah. be doing this all the time and blah, blah, blah. And I just thought, well, th- th- this, this kind of is what I want to do all the time. <laughs> you know, like I, yeah. I thought about like enough things like, isn't enough mom. Yeah. Like, I'll, do I want to be like a lawyer? Do I want to be like yeah. a, you know, this, this person or that person. Um, actually the first job I wanted to be was a, a garbage man. <laughs> really? Yeah. That's nice. Cause I saw, I would, I would wait by the bus stop and yeah. the dudes would come like in the morning right. and this was like, you know, I don't know, 1991 or something. And I'm like waiting at my driveway and they, they'd come to pick up the trash and there'd be like one dude hanging off the back with like, you know, like a tape cassette. I don't even know what the word is for it anymore. Walkman. Walk <laughs> yeah. Walkman and like blasting some, something cool. And Hey, what's up kid? You know, yeah. and, like take the garbage. And I was like, man, that, and then just get on the back of the truck and right. just coast away. And I'm like, that's fucking cool. It man. does look like fun. You kind of surfing down the street. Yeah. Yeah. But I didn't know. I'm a kid. I'm like, that looks yeah. cool. But, but anyway, I mean, I mean like, you know, I just like, like, you know, just being fucking wild and weird and, and doing stuff. And so I, that's, I got into comedy because I had thought, you know, people always told me I was funny. I liked making people laugh. Um, and so I did it. I did it for three years in New York City mm. and was pretty good at it, I think. You know, I mean, I started working club spots like three months in mm. and made friends with some guys like Ari Shafir oh, yeah. and, uh, you know, my buddy Dave Smith and mm. Louis J. Gomez and, um, Big Jay Okerson and, you know, these these guys that have been doing comedy for like seven years right. in the city and they kind of, 
you know, I was able to kind of get into that crew and that's great. It was great. It was really great. I mean, those guys are all great and, um, you know, much, much respect for them and what they're doing. They're, they're killing it right now. And, and I just, I, I had this moment where I was at a comedy club and I, uh, got off stage after, you know, doing really well. And the crowd is like cheering and applauding and, I sit down in the green room next to this guy and I'm like, oh, man, I don't know. I just like I'm not into my jokes right now. I'm like not I'm just I feel like weird. Like I feel kind of numb. And I think someone even asked me like, are you on drugs or something? Like what's going on with you? Are you like on heroin or something? And I just like, no, I just kind of feel this like empty feeling. Like, I don't know. It, and, um, and this guy said to me, he's like, well, he's like, look, man, he's like, we always feel like that. That's why we're comedians. We have to do this. And the only time we feel good is when we're on stage, you know? I'm like, ah, I don't want that. Like, I don't want the only time. And it really resonated with me at the time. Like, I don't think this is true, you know? Like, I don't think this is like an objectively true thing for everyone. Mm. I'm sure Rogan lives a great life, you know, like, but for me at the time, I'm walking dogs during the day, picking up shit. I'm out every night till 4am doing drugs and eating shit and drinking like a maniac and not able to have any meaningful relationship or connection really with anyone. And so I felt that way. And then shortly after that, I just had a bunch of money get dumped into my lap from these bonds that matured when I was born, you know, when I was like one years old and I fucking was listening to you and I'm like, I'm going to Bangkok. I'm going to Thailand. Fuck it. I'm going, you know? Yeah. Well, and that was the end of comedy and walking dogs. Yeah. Well, when I came back from that Southeast Asia trip, I got back into comedy and, uh, I went out to LA. I did some shows out there. Um, and, uh, then I started working with these guys who are running this marketing company. Uh, and I got involved with that and we started just living such a, such a good life so quickly. And I was making a ton of money that, and we were having fun. Like I'd show up at the office and it was, you know, out of this apartment, we bean bags, smoking weed, blasting music, playing basketball in the afternoon, going to clubs at night. So it was a very good life, too good, too comfortable maybe for the, for me. This to, was in LA. This was in New York. Oh you yeah. Back to New York. Right. Yeah. And, uh, stayed, started dating this girl like 10 years younger than me and was having a lot of fun. Yeah. So I'm like, ah, fuck comedy. Like I don't really need it right now. Mm. Yeah. And the, their company was blowing up, and you were writing for them, do, doing these ads. Yeah. 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 How long did that last? Uh, I think I was doing that for about a year and a half. Yeah. And what happened? I didn't, I didn't like, again, with this feeling, you right. know? Like, I'm, I'm always chasing this feeling of truth and things that are, tr- like, aligning in my soul, you know? Mm. Like, if it's not... You know, with comedy, it was like, I'm going up on stage and I'm killing, but I'm telling dick jokes, dick, dick jokes and fart jokes and stuff. And like, you know, my friends at the time were like, dude, just stick with it. You'll, you'll evolve. Your jokes will evolve. You got to fight through this period. And I just felt like I want to travel. I want to go. It's calling me. Mm-hmm. Um, and with the company, like I felt like I'm part of the problem, man. Like I'm, mm-hmm. I'm writing this fucking sponsored content, you know, uh, that's legal to do, but so it's I, like pretending it's an article, but it's really an ad. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's to me, that's deceptive. Yeah. And you know, we're selling these products that are appealing to like older people and, mm. you know, you know, kind of preying on people's like yeah. desire. And I just, 
you know, uh, the first check I got, I think was like for 22 grand. And I'm like, holy shit. Like I was on track to be making like, you know, half a million or something like that. And that was like mind blowing to me. And, yeah. But the shit we were doing, it was all relative. We're sp- I'm spending tremendous amounts of money going to, you know, Miami and Vegas and uh, yeah. whatever, you know, whatever these guys wanted to do. And I realized actually what these guys were doing, like, we'd be at a club and we'd all just be like sitting at this table and it's like night after night. And like, this is the, the confines of like the reward system, you know, in this material kind of realm. And Mm. I'm not, I don't want to be a part of that. Like I want more, I want something different. And And you kind of have to, to be part of the game, right? You have to go to the clubs. You have to go on those trips. Networking. You can't can't be like, no guys, I'm going to save my money. Right. Yeah. <laughs> For my my bailout, you right. know, you got to play the game. Yeah. You got to get the nice apartment. You got to take the girl to nice places. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So you you just felt that emptiness again, and and you bailed. Yeah, I felt that that like pendulum swung back, and some things were. It was you know the relationship between me and my friends at the company were was like deteriorating a little bit i was kind of being a little too outspoken about what i thought should be done right. what direction we should go in and why we should do this and not do this and they didn't like that they were just like look we're at a point right now we're paying you a lot of money you know you've built you've helped build this thing for us this system we got to go in we don't need you chop shop we're bringing someone else churn and burn kind of thing you know we'll get we'll hire five people to do your job and pay them 10 times less. And that's exactly what they did. They fired me. They fired employee number two. Then soon after someone else. And they just kind of have, you know, kind of similar to like the Facebook story, you know, like it's like that kind of thing. And, um, and yeah, it was around that time where I, I was, I was so depressed. Uh, and I had really bad habits and just some darkness and, uh, and I decided like, well, I'm going to um, take some money that I have and this time that I have now and go down to Peru and, and drink ayahuasca. Hmm. You mentioned that you did a screenplay about gambling. Oh, yeah, yeah. When when did that, where did that fit in? Were uh, you into gambling or you knew people or how did? When I was in high school, uh, I got big into gambling. Um, uh, yeah, like I think maybe around like my junior, senior year. It was just kind of, it was just fun. And it was another like kind of like defiant thing to do to mm. like give the middle finger to the teachers. And like we'd set up like a little poker or blackjack thing in the teacher's uh, lounge while they were, you know, while, while we knew they weren't going to be there and mm-hmm. like in the light in the, the corner of the library and stuff. And uh, yeah, so I, I, you know, I, I did that for a little bit and, and a friend of mine, me and him, uh, we, we, big into movies, like huge, you know, movie buffs and, and movie nerds and kind of like annoying, pretentious college kids too. like around that time, like, sure. like, Oh, the, the cinematography and, you know, Roger Deakins is just fantastic. But uh, the current cinematographer, the Tarantino's using doesn't compare, you know, right. which I, I still kind of nerd out about a little bit. Like, um, but yeah, big Tarantino fan and, and just getting into that. So we're like, let's, let's, let's write something like, let's do something. So we wrote this script called the river, the last card that comes out and hold them is the, is the mm. river card. And, uh, it was cool. I think that was around like, Oh five or 
06, something like that. It was in, during college. Mm. So a summer I went out to USC, uh, University of Southern California, and they had like a film program out there. And I just, I went with my buddy, he enrolled in the program and I just came, I was like his like, I was like the Brad Pitt character and oh, <laughs> you know, like, yeah, yeah. Like I was, cause I didn't really have the money to afford to go to USC for the summer film. So right. I just went cause he's like, come hang out. And I acted in some terrible like student films and, and we wrote some stuff and we met a guy out there who was really into like what we were talking about. And so we, we wrote, we wrote this movie script and then we decided to make like a promotional trailer that I, that we put up on MySpace. This is how old this is. We put it up on MySpace. I can't find the link, but yeah, Ron Jeremy plays the the gangster, the bookie, in the in the in the film, and uh, um, fully clothed, fully clothed, Ron Jeremy. Yeah, uh, you know, Ron Jeremy and I were in the same category for the AVN Award. Yeah, did you know that? The, the, oh, I didn't know you were in the same category. Yeah, so I I sort of you know I, I tell myself that I cock blocked Ron Jeremy. <laughs> Yeah, we were both nominated for best non-sex performance in 2017 or whenever, 18 or whenever I wanted. What was he in? I don't know. Oh, I, wow. I forget. I mean, I I could find the list, you know, because the list would have like the actor and the film and, you know, in each case. But he his was one of the only real names in the list. It was like me and him and, you like know. Kurt Ding Dong. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Ryan Driller. I was one of them. <laughs> What would you, what would your porn name be? Oh God, I don't know. Based on that, the formula. What is it? Pet and first and the street you grew up on it would be Tiger Darlington. Tiger Darlington. Yeah, which sounds more like a woman than a guy. I think. Yeah, that's not a bad name. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah anyway, so so the the gambling thing. It wasn't like you weren't in casinos or online. no. I was. Oh, you yeah. were. Yeah, I never did the online thing. Mm. I liked playing poker live, like in, yeah, with people. Uh, but I really just, li- I like the, ru- I'm like an addict, you know, yeah. like I like the rush of gambling. Right. Um, so was it similar to the rush of being on stage as a standup? Yeah, I guess similar. Cause you win or lose big. Right. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can, I guess you've experienced bombing, right? I yeah. Mean, that's part of No, the- I've never actually never bombed. Can't, uh, <laughs> it never happened. You just, you passed out that's why you <laughs> <remember> <laughs> to carry you off stage. Yeah. Yeah. I, I enjoy playing poker. I'm, I would never say I'm any good at it, but I used to get together with the same group of guys every Sunday night from like five to 11. Uh, and we would drink beer and smoke weed and play poker but we I not not Texas Hold'em and that shit cuz to me that's all what I suck at is the numbers and the calculations and remembering who played what and what cards been up and all that kind of stuff which you know for a serious poker player that's basically what it is all I'm good at is sensing when someone's lying so I love seven card stud yeah you know a game like that where you can watch things and watch how people are I'm just reading faces. I'm not remembering that Jack of Spades has already come up, so he can't possibly have a straight. I, I forget all that shit, especially if I'm smoking yeah, weed. Yeah, play the know? man, not the cards. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I'm pretty good at lying, conversely. So I can <laughs> nice. bluff. Yeah, so yeah. I would keep up with these other dudes who were like nerds, you know. Um, but I really enjoyed it. I don't know why, really, because I never really won more than I lost. It was always just, you know, hovering around, breaking even. Yeah. But there's something about exercising that particular skill that I really enjoyed. Yeah. Which makes me want to interview a detective. 
I really would like to talk to a, a police detective about do some are some people just better at lying than others and and are some people better at detecting it than others oh i i totally think so yeah i read this book never split the difference by oh, yeah fbi that, hostage negotiator i haven't read it but oh, I, it's I great. bought it yeah um chris that, voss i think his name right. is right you should get him on the show he's cool yeah and you know who recommended that was this this porn magnate i had on greg lansky oh cool okay yeah he recommended that book to me and and he knows the guy so his name to Greg Schlonsky. <laughs> Greg's cool. I, I don't know if you heard that episode. He's he's a really cool guy. He yeah. Uh, yeah, he owns like one of the biggest porn empires in the world right now. He's about your age. Oh, good for him. Nice. Yeah, and he's like flying around in helicopters and you know, like yeah. living that life. But he's totally down to earth. Really, really thoughtful, decent dude. And you can tell, like, he got into porn just because he was a young guy and like, I like porn and let's try making, you know, he and his buddy put together this thing and they borrowed his buddy's parents' house when they were on vacation and, you know, they just fucking balled their way through it. And next thing you know, <laughs> balled their way through it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so, uh, so the, the movie didn't get made. Yeah, we just kind of like, I don't know, it just kind of like died. Like yeah. we, we sort of, we we were like 20, 21, and we just kind of were like, I, I actually wanted to stay in, in LA. I'm like, this is what I want to do, because right. I felt so alive when I was on the movie set, and I was like producing and going around, and it was just fun. It was just cool. It's an awesome, creative, collaborative environment. Yeah. So I remember talking to some friends and my parents and just, and they're like, look, just go back to school, get your degree, and then you can do the things that you want to do. And, mm. you know, my, I, I, I really was like, no, I don't want to do that. But I think that I, I had something to prove, you know, because I got kicked out of school and had to get a GED and, mm. you know, this kind of this like fear of like, Oh, I'm this thing now. I'm this tainted person. And people think I'm just this troublemaker, stupid guy who mm. disrupts class and is always joking around and farting and shit. And, you know, like I'm yeah. like, I felt like, well, I, I need to sort of do this to show everyone, look, I'm, I'm okay. Like I, I can do this. And so I, I did, you know, and you've grown up in the meantime. Yeah. So the value of being a troublemaker is diminished. You know, at least on a superficial level. Yeah, it's not like an attention-seeking thing, really, yeah. yeah. So w was your trip to Peru your first experience with uh, psychedelics? No, I, I had been just slamming psychedelics in my face for, <laughs> for a couple of years uh, before that. Um, Do you remember their, your first experience? Yeah, well, I we took mushrooms and, and LSD, like when I was in high school and a little bit in college, but it was more just like a part of everything else. It was like, Hey, like have a beer, like do some Coke, like have a joint, like take some acid. Like it mm. wasn't like this intentional thing. Mm. I didn't know anything about it. It wasn't until Steve, I read Steve Jobs's biography in like 2010. I think it was where he said taking LSD was one of the most important things he's ever done in his life. And I was kind of like a jobs geek for a little bit. Like I, I like watch his keynotes and stuff. Cause I really liked his like presentation style and mm. his like, you know, how he spoke and delivered information and, and stuff. And, um, 
and so I, I, I went to Coachella in 2012, uh, my first time going some, you know, friends of mine from Arizona and California were like, dude, you have no idea. You got to come to this like West coast music festival. And that was like 2012 was probably the year that like Coachella was starting to like get, go down, you know? Mm. Um, and so that was my first time going to something like that. And it, you know, I had been sort of this East coast, New York guy, like this kind of like, yeah, fuck you. Like, you know, <laughs> a bunch of hippies, like, you know? And, uh, and I went out there and, and I had, I had taken a lot of LSD one day and I just had this magical, profound experience. I remember distinctly going up to one of the, I think it was like the Sahara tent that where they play like electronic music and walking up there and having this feeling as if like, the windshield wipers had been cleaned mm. and like the veil had been mm. like this filmy veil had been like lifted away. And I was just getting this like information download and this euphoric sense of bliss and ecstasy and connection and telepathy with people around me and this love. And I, I, it just blew me totally open. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And that did that have a lasting effect on your life? Yeah. Yeah. Cause that set me on the quick, because after reading that, would jo- like I think having the uh, you know the the kind of like container of information that like oh Steve Jobs said this was okay so I like you know I had that knowledge going in and then I did that and I had that experience that was so loving and beautiful and, and eye opening and mind expanding that that made me want to do more research about it uh, okay. so I just started going off on you know, where did this come from? Who invented it? What does psychedelic even mean? And you know, what, what was going on at Harvard in the sixties? And so I got mm. into Le- Le- Leary and Alpert and Ramdas and, uh, Ralph Metzner and, um, studying all this stuff and, and looking at it and investigating it and listening to a lot of McKenna and Watts and Joseph Campbell and mm. just really it's blowing really my mind open. Yeah, that, that was my, yeah. that was my real educational period was, yeah. was then. Yeah. Yeah. I get that. I, I, I relate to that a lot. I mean, certainly the literature was for, in my case, the literature we were talking about earlier was happening at the same time in my life when I, when the psychedelics were happening, you know? So I was, I was having those sort of like mind blowing experiences and I was while I was reading those novels and it was fucking amazing. Yeah. And then like, I think I was talking about this the other night. I'm like, I'm, I just keep, I couldn't get enough. Mm-hmm. Like I was blowing through like a book every three days. I was listening to audiobooks, podcasts, YouTube videos, anything I get my hands on. I was just di- like consuming all of it while at the same time also, you know, Terrence McKenna talks about this like heroic dose you do five dried grams of mushrooms in silent darkness and let it let the mushrooms speak to you. And so I had been doing that and I'm like, I'm, I'm reading all this stuff and it's converging. And, and I'm also reading libertarian philosophy and libertarian literature like Hayek and Mises and Bastiat and Henry Hazlitt and uh, Rothbard and Ron Paul and like all these guys because that's where my political leanings were going. Mm-hmm. So all of this stuff was like merging at the same time. And, um, it's like, it can kind of actually make you crazy. Well, that's what I was going <laughs> to, I was going to ask you about, cause we talked about that pendulum. So you became evangelical at that point. Yeah, I think, but I think I, I was like kind of tempered evangelical. Oh. Like I, I was, cause I, so a little backstory about this, like my, my uncle is this 
schizophrenic and um um there was always this there was this like conditioning or priming that i had growing up you know where my my i remember you know my mother always just being like well, he he's he, what, he might be crazy like your brother, you know. Like he might be nuts like your brother. Like I, you know, don't go crazy. Just this repetitive like fear projection onto me that mm. because of what I was doing, it was it was outside of the realm of acceptable behavior. And right. there's something strange, and there's something weird, and you know. Also, my grandmother, her brother had this condition as well, and he had to have a lobotomy, you know, and he was never the, you know, I mean, yeah. it was just, it was so this just, is your, your father's side of the family, my father's side of the family. Yeah. Right. And so there was this intense fear that I was going to be this way and we can't have him be this way. Let's no, like, you know, and so that really helped, uh, not help <laughs> that didn't help at all, but that informed my, uh, my decision making when it came to like what I should speak out about and how I should speak out about things. Like, am I crazy? Like, mm. is this right? Are right. people going to think that I'm nuts? Like, I'm gonna, am I going to be locked away? A lot of paranoia. Yeah. I yeah. Paranoia. I was going to ask if, if your early psychedelic experiences, you were wondering if you were losing it. Yeah, yeah. totally. Yeah. But I also, it would swing. Right. I would swing from like, I'm totally, I'm, you know, in my house, like looking out the blinds, like they know there's a van down there, like, you know, <laughs> to also like, no, this is, I'm pretty fucking confident that like, you know, this is something that I feel comfortable like speaking about. So it took a while for me. I didn't start Mikeadelic until the spring of 2016. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but I started talking about it as, as I was, evol- you know, on the podcast, I started being more and more and more outspoken and, I was getting good feedback from people that were listening. Like, yeah, you're onto something. Like, I like it when you say that. So I'm like, okay, cool. Well, if I'm, if I am crazy, at least these people will be with me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You said, I mean, the other night we were talking about how ego, uh, can get involved and how susceptible all of us are in those early psychedelic periods to, you know, wanting to, uh, evangelize, evangelize, I guess is the word proselytize, you know, tell everybody, everybody should do it. Everybody, you know, get all leery about it. Yeah. And I think if I remember correctly, we, we said something about, you know, people think they're God and you said, well, I kind of thought I was God in in a sense. Is that accurate? Yeah. So yeah, I, 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 I had this, uh, this, ex- when I went down to Peru in 2016, in the summer of 2016, I, I had this, um, I did seven ceremonies while I was there and the, the theme that kept coming up throughout all of these ceremonies was that I am to be a healer. Mm. I am to be a shaman. I am to be somebody that learns these ways and works in this way. But that skeptical kind of paranoid part of me was like, don't buy into this delusion. Like, don't like think that you're special and that this message is for you. And, you know, just the last ceremony that I had, uh, impacts me to this day. I think about it almost all the time. It was the most profound experience I've ever had in my life. Um, I, went in with this intention of like, you know, show me what my path is and, and show me where my, show me where my power is. Um, uh, t- 
great uh, Tanya, formerly Tanya Mate. Uh, she was once married oh, right. to Gabor Mate's right. uh, son, now uh, not. But at the time, uh, she was there. And I actually went there because of her. Like, I was like, oh, cool. Gabor Mate, I love that guy. And she was training in the way of Gabor. Mm. Compassionate inquiry and, right. you know, all this stuff. And she... Um, you know, it was like, well, yeah, make that your intention, you know? So I went into this ceremony and I had what was like, I didn't know at the time, but it was like a Kundalini awakening, like in the ceremony. And I had been compelled to like stand up on my feet and I was kind of like convulsing and shaking. And, um, I started saying like these words, like uh, I was like, sa, ka, ra, sha, hu, sa, and I'm like making all these noises and speaking in this language and which I later found out was a lot of it was Sanskrit. And, uh, that that's, you know, really weird. And cause I didn't know anything about that beforehand. And, um, uh, and so I had this experience that, you know, I left form and I went to this like infinite place of eternal bliss total ecstasy. Uh, I remember people saying to me the next day, the girl on the mat, like next to me was like, yeah, I, I looked over and I just saw like a white light. Like I didn't see you. I just saw this like white light and someone else saying like, yeah, there was, was there like another shaman in the room? Like I, I felt like there was another energy there. And Someone else was like, yeah, I, I felt Mike, like you came to me in ceremony and put my hands on my shoulders and told me everything was going to be okay and gave me a hug. And um, the reason why they were saying that is because I, I was dealing with this tremendous energy moving through me and Tanya had told me to channel this energy into the room and I had kind of interpreted that as, well, I, I have, um, you know, I, I, I love these people here that I'm with and I'm going to try and like, you know, send love and be love. And, and I saw this kind of energy like shooting out of me and this honeycomb web that was like breathing with those Icaros and different colors. And mm. I was going through such a difficult and challenging experience that they had one of the maestros come up and sing to me again personally and really work with me and kind of like, he's giving me the Ikoro and I'm taking it in and I'm giving him back my own thing. Like the sa, sha, ra, hu, ha, shi, wu. So you were suffering. Mm-hmm. Cause yeah. it sounds ecstatic. It was ecstatic. It was, it was tremendously ecstatic. Uh, and so when this all ended, you know, and it was beautiful. The, the maestro was like, mi hermano, mi hermano. He like put his shoulder on me and called me his brother. And I cried and, and I think a, a lot of also the crying came from like, well, if this is true, if this is my path, like I have to leave everything that I have claimed to be my identity and who I am and my right. friends and my reality and everything is gone. I had went down here just because like, hey, I think I watch porn and jerk off too much and I got some bad habits and I smoke and drink and do coke. I need to get healed, man. Right. And I got this. Right. Like total ego death. Yeah. Yeah. Like, what do I do with that now? Right. And, uh, so that, that, that put me in a place where I went back to New York and, uh, my whole world fell apart. Like everything just crumbled. And, uh, and I really, I lost my mind. Mm. Like I fucking lost my mind. And, um, yeah, I think, uh, I was talking about like Robert Anton Wilson, you know, I, he was 
talking about this point where you enter like chapel perilous where the decision is like you're you're in this zone like he thought he was receiving communications from Sirius you know um these people there's people that have these kind of breaks from reality you can call them a psychotic break or a spiritual spiritual emergence but i had thought like i am you know one of the visions that i had in the ceremony was a the archetype of Jesus, you know, the symbol of Jesus and the symbol of Buddha coming together, merging, and then bursting into this white light. And I had left my body and I'm in this formless void. I'm in this infinite space. And, uh, I'm like, now what do I do with that? And I thought, well, I'm so, well, fuck this reality. I'm above this. I'm superior. I've seen the light, man. Like I'm, you know, like fuck this whole bullshit I'm living in this square little box apartment and there's cars honking and people puking and drinking outside. Like what, what is this shit? Like, I don't want to be a part of this. And, uh, I totally just went into this hole. I I think a lot of people call this like the dark night of the soul Mm. sort of period where I started to question everything and like questioning my reality and questioning like my sanity and getting really nihilistic and cynical and jaded and just stewing in this madness that I've, that I was in, I really thought about just ending it. Mm. I thought about ending it because I think the place that I went to was the, the end. I don't know. Uh, but there was this feeling of like, well, if I, why do I have to suffer in the prison of this human existence? why not just go back to that place where I'm in the infinite, where I'm in the, you know, and, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, actually I had a, um, I guess it was really, (laughs) this is really, so on April fool's day, April 1st of that year, uh, 2017, I smoked a joint and I went in the shower and um, I'm taking a shower and a big thing that came up for me in these ayahuasca ceremonies from the summer was like, I turned into this coyote, you know, and the coyotes typically like the trickster archetype. I felt a very trickster ish energy coming on. So funny that it was April fools the, mm. that this, what I'm about to tell you happened. I got in the shower and I had a spontaneous um, experience and everything that I had experienced in these ceremonies and everything that I experienced afterwards leading up to this point all just came rushing in like a flood and just boom, 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 boom. Connections, insights, epiphanies, and oh my God, okay, it all makes sense. I get it now. Oh, and I, was, I was reading William James at the time mm. and I saw that William James had a very kind of similar thing. He went down to the Amazon and he then came back and he had this whole thing and he said, I'm going to commit myself to working as hard as I can on what I like believe in for one year. And if it doesn't happen, I'm going to kill myself. And this was like this deal that William James made. And so this, this instance happened to me in, on April fool's day, uh, in, in the shower. And, and that was the point where I said, all right, like I'm going to give up all this bullshit, this life here, this, all these things. I left my apartment in New York. I moved back in with my parents first time since I was 18 Mm. at 31 or whatever. And, um, I'm just like, yeah, the, the, the jig is up. So now I need to like get back and, and do what I need to do. Cause I was in, you know, I was in a bad, bad place. And, um, and then I started working on recovery after that. 
And then I went back to drink more ayahuasca. <laughs> mm. And what did what did recovery look like for you? I was I developed a uh, routine of waking up in the morning, going outside, meditating, uh, and doing breath work exercises, doing Wim Hof breathing, mm. taking cold showers, uh, going for runs. Uh, reading, writing, podcasting. Actually, doing my podcast, if you listen to some of the episodes I put out in 2017, <sighs> um, thank you to like my fans because they were the ones that kept me in. Right. And they, you know, I was getting on the microphone and I was just saying, you know, guys, I don't know. I'm just like, you know, what is all this shit? Like, what are we doing here? Like, I, I'm depressed. I, I don't feel good. And, you know, society makes us this way. And, you know, really just digging into all these things that, both internal and external and the, and the messages I would get from my listeners would be so touching and mm. so moving. And, um, you're not alone. You're not alone. Exactly. Mm. Yeah. And that means everything. Mm. It didn't matter. I didn't, I don't need, you know, 30,000, 20,000, whatever million fans, just one person yeah. to, to, to connect with you. One guy from like, you know, Kansas City or whatever is like, hey man, I'm here and 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 there's no one that I can talk to about this stuff and and no one has said it in the way that you've said it and I feel like like I was alone but now I'm I feel like you you get what I'm saying and you understand and you know and uh, I think that's just really really important you know and and that was the I thought I was nuts releasing these episodes where I'm ranting and going right. crazy and then the the people that came in and and messaged me were were the ones that that kept me going. Isn't that amazing how, how these archaic forms and patterns keep playing out? They find a way, like the mushrooms pushing up through the asphalt, you know, these soft, vulnerable things somehow just break through again and again. Because I mean, you're describing that, what it sounds like to me is this classic situation where you were in a sense called to shamanize you were those experiences of you uh trying to break through and and connect with this other world and yet you had a foot back in this world and the pain of moving between the two and knowing that that one existed and yet you still have to deal with all this pedestrian bullshit and the puking and the you know the drunks outside and the pain of of that sort of split that was occurring within you, yeah, that can be called a psychotic break. But in a shamanic society, it's called a call to shamanize. And the people in the community typically will take care of that person because they know that if that person gets through this, which typically happens, you know, late teens to early 30s, somewhere in that realm. If they can get through this, then they become a very powerful healer because they've seen both worlds and they can move between those worlds at will and find the knowledge that's needed to heal. Yeah. It's, yeah. I mean, you know, I don't mean to feed any aggrandizing <laughs> tendencies or anything. No, no. But yeah. I mean, you know, and those people reaching out to you are like, dude, you're, 
like let us get you through this because you've got something that's valuable. Totally, and I love those people, you know, and and that's why I do what I do. I mean, I I'm not doing it for any other reason than that. I want to be the person that that I needed when I was going through shit. Right. And if I can be that person for someone, and really it's about like getting real and raw and vulnerable on on the show when I do my solo shows because I believe that what what's the point of faking thing what's the point of we're we're here we're we're here now like let's put it all out on the table see where the chips fall you know mm. and 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 let's deal with it you know right and so i i did some episodes where i revealed you know some stuff that i felt like really needed to be talked talked about i i remember i did this one called uh what it means to be a man in a culture gone mad Mm. Um, where I talked about something that happened to me that really impacted my life when I was younger. Um, you know, I think I was maybe like nine or 10 and some guy, older boy on, on my street, like we would hang out and we had, you know, this thing where he was like, Hey, you know, like touch my penis or whatever. And like, I was like, okay, you know, I guess, but aren't we, aren't we not supposed to do that? I don't understand. Like, he's like, Oh no, it's cool. Like, you know, I'll get more popcorn if you do, you know, watch this movie. I'm like, I, I, I I don't fucking know. You know, no one told me or talked Mm. to me about any of this stuff. And, you know, uh, maybe I've picked up on like, well, you know, from my like family's Catholic, uh, being that like oh this is what you do and this is what you not do you don't do so and then when i went in like when i went into junior high and high school it was a very macho faggot you know like freak weird you know like that was the eminem was popular at the time right Mm -hmm. like we me and all my friends were listening to eminem and so there was this thing inside of me that was like am I, am I like, am I a bad person? Like, am Mm. I gay? Like, am I, is there something wrong with me? Am I weird? Is, is this, is this bad? Like, I don't, there was, I didn't have any like outlet for that. And I don't know. I, you know, I think maybe when I, when I did that episode, I had some people, you know, message me and say like, Hey man, I I went through something like that too. And, you know, and, and, and I'm like, yeah, maybe this is like a thing that happens and needs to be talked about. I think you're right. I went through a thing like, I mean, I don't even want to say I went through a thing like that. I had experiences like that. It wasn't traumatic. It was only traumatic for me in retrospect. Um, You know, as you say, like you get into that high school, junior high school culture, and then you're like, wait a minute. You know, when I was 11 or nine or whatever it was, um, I did something that from this perspective is fucked up, but this perspective is fucked up. Yeah. And yeah, I think virtually all kids have you know sexual experimentation phases and as you say virtually everyone's walking around with this dark secret that they think they're the only ones and they think there's something wrong with them but if the fucking lights came on you'd find out that everybody had those experiences right yeah and and those who didn't fucking imagined them you know and the problem isn't the experience. The problem is the social bullshit that, you know, crews around it like a fucking barnacle on a ship. It's yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. And, and the question, something maybe you and, uh, Anya Kotz will talk about on her podcast. Cause I, I have to wrap this up so that you can, uh, we have enough time for you guys to record yours. Um, the question of like how to be a man 
in this society right now? I think that's a super loaded question. And one of the ways to manifest courage, which I think is very much associated with masculinity, the best way is vulnerability, which seems counterintuitive. Right. I, and, and I really, I remember this, uh, quote from Robert Bly where he's saying, he said, wherever a man's wound is, is where his genius lies. Right. And I, and I took that and I said, okay, well, I, I guess there's something here to this. If I can be the person that exposes my wounds, um, I think that can help people and I want to help people. Right. Yeah. Very cool. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Anytime. Went deep. Uh, <laughs> Mikeadelic. Yeah, Mikeadelic. podcast. Yeah, it's available uh, everywhere. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, um, Stitcher, wherever. People love it. I, I mean, I haven't listened to it. I'd never heard of you until... Uh, I guess you wrote me an email years ago when you were walking dogs and you went to Thailand. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we, but, we were kind of like, you know, virtual... <laughs> pen pals and um yeah. well yeah man look i was yeah. looking for i was looking for kind of an older father type figure that i yeah. could get answers to things that i was dealing with and i didn't really have that in my environment so yeah thank you yeah um, yeah. Well, yeah i'm i'm glad it worked out but anyway i was just going to say uh your fans are rabid it's great <laughs> yeah I guess you put out the call to, you know, when I was in town, you're like, hey, you know, tell Chris Ryan he should talk to me. And I got like 20 emails within uh, 24 hours. I was like, Jesus, if I don't talk to this dude, Mike Adelic, I'm going to get killed. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, they're just, you know, like I, I, I don't have like a massive fan base, but I have. I have a really dedicated, passionate, and active fan base. And probably because of, of your vulnerability and sincerity. You yeah, know? I, I mean, mean, those are the kind of people who like, yeah, they engage for sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah, I, I love that. Yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah. All right, keep it up, man. Thank you. Thanks for doing this. You got it. Well, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Mike Adelic, you can find this podcast wherever podcasts are found. And don't forget, this episode is brought to you by Lilo.com. Use the discount code Chris Ryan to get 15% off all full-priced items, and they always have stuff on sale, so you're going to get a discount no matter what you do. Thanks for listening. Here's my mom and the great, always wonderful, Carsey Blanton, who is also on tour, so maybe go check out her webpage, CarseyBlanton.com, and see if she's coming somewhere near you. I think she's somewhere in the Northeast right now, Pennsylvania, New York, somewhere around there. Um, but I know she's traveling all over the place and she is fantastic in concert. She's powerful and amazing. So check her out. CarseyBlanton.com. Thanks for listening. Yo, catch you next time. Okay, mom, uh, tell people what they can order from the garage. Okay. In our cottage garage, we have lots and lots of t-shirts, sex at dawn, civilized to death, vanthropology, Tangentially speaking, paleo modern and talking out of my ass. <laughs> she didn't like saying that last one. Then we now have some new things added. We've got beer cozies or koozies or whatever they're called. Oh, civilized to death. Design. They're all civilized That's right. to death. We have stickers 
and car decals, right? Yes. Okay. There you have it. That's Julie, my mom. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm going to die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Trying to meet an expectation, wondering what they're going to say. Doesn't ask for much A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You wanna shut it up but give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time Thinking about a reputation It's a big deal if you want to be free. Say what you want to feel. Spend the night with me. I'm gonna take you up in my arms. And if we must go down, we'll go singing to the smoke alarms. We'll dance into the ground. 